It's great to be with you. My name's Mike, uh, for anybody new here. I'm on the pastoral team here at the church. And um, we've got a really kind of different sermon there tonight. Um, in, obviously, last uh, week was uh, Worldview, the 6.30. But for those of you who are here, uh, maybe more of the morning services, you will have heard Philip preach uh, on the topic of the tabernacle. And he was saying how buildings have a particular significance in the way people worship. And uh, today, uh, I'm going to be actually honing in a bit more on the tabernacle, and I'm going to be speaking about the particular garments that the high priest uh, wore whilst he was ministering in the tabernacle. And it's an important question, what to wear, isn't it? Because sometimes, uh, if you're anything like me, it can be a bit of a dilemma. And there can be consequences for getting it wrong. Take, for instance, if you're dressing for a job interview. Depending on the role you're applying for, you neither want to under or overdress. Too casual. And the interviewer might think, if that's how you approach your work, then I'm never going to employ you. Or too smart. And you might be accused of being too serious. uh, Unable to have any fun. Or consider the situation of a British astrophysicist, Dr. Mark Taylor, recently found himself in when he appeared on national TV uh, reporting on the progress of the little landing probe Philae on its way to land on Comet 67P. Did anybody see him? Uh, well, whilst being interviewed, he had the misfortunate, uh, he made the misfortunate choice of wearing a t-shirt decorated in cartoon semi-clad women. Um, and, uh, on the day of one of his greatest achievements, landing this little probe on a comet, uh, later on social media, he was given a thorough dressing down and he felt forced to apologise to the general public. So it's no surprise, is it, if sometimes we agonise about what to wear, especially if we're meeting with somebody important. And this takes me to the question that I'm going to put before you this evening. How will you clothe yourself when you meet with God? That's right, how will you clothe yourself when you meet with God? Well, the good news is that the Bible has plenty of wardrobe advice. So using the high priestly garments that have been described in Exodus, part of which has been read to us uh, as a main marker, this evening I'm going to explain the overarching story of God's salvation by looking at the history of the garments worn. You can call it a brief fashion tour of the Bible, if you like. And there are four outfits that we're going to consider along the way. There's Adam and Eve's garments. There's uh, Aaron's high priestly garments. Jesus' high priestly garments and our garments. So without further ado, let's uh, dive in and have a look at uh, what Adam and Eve uh, like to wear. You may be wondering in a series on Exodus why I'm beginning with Adam and Eve's dress sense. Why at the beginning of Genesis, why does that have anything to do with our series on Exodus and what the high priestly garments look like? Well, I can assure you that uh, as we go through, all will become very clear. Because you remember that when we meet with Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. They're naked at first, and they feel absolutely no shame. They feel no shame in front of each other, and they feel no shame in front of God. Here in the paradise of God, Adam and Eve need no clothes to cover up, because they've got nothing to hide. Physically, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, they feel completely at peace with each other and with God. 
And the Jews used the word shalom to describe this state of being. You also recall that in the Garden of Eden, there were many trees which God told Adam he could eat from. But two of the trees took on particular significance. There was a tree of life that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from, but there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God said, don't eat from that or you will surely die. Well, then Satan enters the scene, doesn't he? Deceiving Eve, and then both she and Adam have some of the fruits. They disobey God's commands, and the results are catastrophic. Their eyes are opened, and they lose their innocence. For the first time, Adam and Eve feel naked and exposed before one another and before God. And so they sow fig leaves together to cover up their nakedness before each other. But this temporary fix can't cover up their nakedness before God. So when God comes walking in the garden later in the evening, afraid because of the sin they've committed, Adam and Eve hide from his presence. When God questions their behaviour, they respond by passing the book, denying any responsibility for their own actions. And in their refusal to repent, God increases their toil and drives them out of his presence. Banished from the Garden of Eden, eastwards, God places cherubim and a flaming sword in the front of the entrance to prevent their access to the tree of life. Well, this then sets the context for the rest, uh, for the biggest question the rest of the Bible asks us. And it's this, how can simple people approach a holy God? How can sinners come to the presence of the Lord? Well, right here at the start of humanity's disobedience towards God, we're given a clue. Because as well as God's judgments on sin, on Adam and Eve, we also see his compassion and grace. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, we're told God makes garments of skin to cover up Adam and Eve. This is a foretaste of what's to come. We see it takes the sacrifice of an animal to cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness before God. So east of Eden, Adam and Eve live in what feels like a kind of transitory state. As God's creation, they bear his image. But they feel separated from his life-giving presence. And maybe some of you might feel a little bit like that this evening. Like you're wandering around, partially clothed, east of Eden. You know God created you, you feel it inside. But you're unable to sense his presence with you. Or maybe some of you here tonight thinking, I'm just not worthy enough to approach God. Or perhaps you just feel lost without God and you don't know how to even begin any search for him. With these thoughts in our mind, we need to move on to the second outfit in our Salvation Fashion Tour, as we look at Aaron's high priestly garments. But before we get to the garments themselves, we need to think about why has Mike been speaking about the book of Genesis? We need to understand a little bit more about the visual drama that's being played out in the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was much more than than an elaborate catwalk. The tabernacle was the place where God promised to meet and speak with his chosen people. You remember, um, well, if you, uh, last week Philip told us that um, God gave precise instructions for the tabernacle's construction. 
The tabernacle was designed to convey a sense of God's sheer holiness. We saw some of that in the reading that Claire gave to us. So whilst God dwelt in the holies of holies, the final bit of the tabernacle uh, within the Israelite camp, it was clear that God is also separate from his people, both among and separate. And that's why God set up the tabernacle to remind the Israelites what happened in the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle symbolised the offence that Adam and Eve caused and the sacrifice required for humanity to return and be in relationship with God. Now why do I say that? Well, if you think about the tabernacle, there's the east-facing uh, east entrance guarded by the cherubim. The tree of life, represented by the golden candlestick with its branches. And there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, where the law was. Along with a whole host of other furnishings that are rich in the imagery of the Genesis story right at the beginning of the Bible. So with this in mind, let's now look at Aaron's priestly garments to see what they reveal about the terms through which uh, the Israelites could approach God. And details of the garments can be found in Exodus chapter 28, 29 and 39. So let's take a closer look. Well, in chapter 28, we're told that it's the sacred garments made for Aaron that give him dignity and honour. So the royal garments represent Aaron's priestly ministry in its ideal reality. They represent a holiness which neither Aaron as the high priest had within himself nor his sons to follow. It's nothing that Aaron could personally embody. They were bestowed on him by the garments that God gave him to wear. And uh, hopefully there'll be a little picture that might pop up. Um, The garments themselves, they consist of an ephod, a breastpiece, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash. And all the clothes are loaded with meaning some of which we'll, uh, we'll explore now. Looks good, doesn't it, eh? I almost tried to get one from eBay, but uh, there was none forthcoming, so I'm dressed like this. Um, but on this, the shoulder pieces of the effort, which is made from gold, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, two engraved onyx stones uh, are mounted. And these precious stones carry the names of the twelve tribes of Israel to bring them into remembrance before the Lord's. They symbolise the fact that the high priest is the representative of all of Israel. When he goes into the tabernacle to make the sacrifices, he's mediating between God and the people. Then there's the breast piece for making decisions. This appears to have been a square pouch which the high priest wore over his chest. On the outside of the pouch there were twelve precious stones, each one again representing one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the value of these stones indicates how precious the Israelites are to God. And also to the high priest who enters the holy place wearing these precious stones uh, with the names of Israelites, uh, the tribes, over his heart. Inside the pouch of the breastpiece, Urim and Thummim were placed. I don't know if you've ever heard of Urim and Thummim, but uh, they were no ordinary accessories. Urim and Thummim were used by the high priest to determine the judgments of God for the people of Israel. They were often used in times of crisis and indicated that every decision was from the Lord. We're getting there now. And attached to the front of the turban was a plate of gold engraved with the seal holy to the Lord. 
Aaron would wear this continually on his forehead. So as he came bearing the guilt of Israel, all the gifts he brought to sacrifice would be acceptable to God. And then finally, the last item to mention is the linen undergarments. Aaron wore these so that he might not incur guilt and die if his nakedness was exposed before the altar. When Aaron was fully dressed in all this get-up, it must have been quite a sight. It would have been glorious and beautiful in its context. Surely God would let Aaron approach the inner parts of the tabernacle, his dwelling place, dressed in all this splendour. Well, interestingly, the answer is no. Later in chapter 9, we see first he has to wash with water, then he and the garments and the altar all have to be consecrated. And basically, this means they have to slaughter a bull and rams, and they have to sprinkle the blood of the animals over anything that's going to be present in the Lord's dwelling place. Now, to me, this seems like quite a peculiar picture, and I'm sure it seems a bit odd to you too. All the beauty of the tabernacle system, the intricacy, the richness of the gold furnishings, the ornateness of the garments, and the royalty of the purple cloth. Why would God then ask his high priest to spoil all this by sprinkling it with blood and blood of animals? The bloodstains were an acknowledgement of Israel's guilt. The blood was an important reminder that no matter how hard they tried to cover over their sin with beautiful garments, God saw beneath the clothing to the condition of the heart. So once a year when Aaron as the high priest and representative of Israel was allowed by God to enter into the most holy place of the tabernacle in order to make an atonement for Israel's sins, it was as if Adam himself was returning to the Garden of Eden to atone for his sin and petition God to come back into his presence. The power of this this spectacle must have been immense. I imagine all the Israelites gasped in horror as this real-life drama played out before them. So what relevance do Aaron's high priestly garments have for us today as we seek to approach a holy God? Well, surely it's a reminder that no matter how hard we try and cover up our sin by beautifying the way we look on the outside, even if we manage to fool others, God sees straight to the condition of our hearts. He therefore asks us to acknowledge our guilt before him so that he can sort it out. He can clean up our mess. It reminds me of the story of uh, two of my neighbours when I was living in Oxford. Uh, One um, used to be a homeless guy. Uh, until an amazing woman next door took him in to live in her spare room. And one day, in order to uh, try and repay uh, some of the favour that she'd uh, given him, he decided he would wash her car. Well, after he'd worked hard uh, for a couple of hours to thoroughly scrub it, um, afterwards it, it looked absolutely beautiful. Um, and it was all, it came up sparkly and, and silver, and it looked like he'd done a really good job. But on closer inspection, it was clear that the surface was, all, surface was all scratched and ruined. Unfortunately, he'd used wire wool instead of a sponge to do the cleaning. Well, I'm happy to report that uh, my neighbour forgave her lodger for his mistake. But we can find ourselves in the same situation spiritually. When we try and clean ourselves up in our own strength, it's like using wire wool. 
the harder we scrub, the more damage we do. Unless we let God clean us up, then all our earthly efforts will exhaust us, leaving us scratched upon closer inspection. In some senses, this was the problem with the tabernacle system as well. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that it was an earthly copy of the heavenly reality. It was only ever set up by God as a shadow of the perfection to come. So whilst the animal sacrifices the high priest made were enough to cover over Israel's sin in the short term, God's granting of temporary forgiveness was like a promissory note. It was like a check, basically, granting full forgiveness when the perfect sacrifice had come. In the meantime, the repetitive nature of the sacrifices only served to remind the Israelites of their sin. All the external regulations well, they never really uh, went deep enough to cleanse the state of the Israelite heart, Israelites' heart or affect the conscience as they tried to worship God. And consequently, the Israelites never really knew this true shalom peace that was so lacking after Adam had fallen in the garden. This is why the tabernacle system had to be superseded if the people were ever to be able to approach God again. And this brings us to Jesus' high priestly garments. Hebrews describes Jesus as the fulfilment of the tabernacle system. Jesus is described as the high priest who went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands. Yet when we look at the journey Jesus went through, when he went through his tabernacle, he lacked all outward signs of dignity and honour. As high priest, before his tri- well, during his trial, uh, Jesus went before Pilate and he was clothed in a robe of purple. But this was the, so that the soldiers could mock him and slap him in the face. Instead of a turban with the words, holy to the Lord, inscribed on, he was forced to wear a crown of thorns and was accused of bringing the Lord's name into disrepute. Later, when he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and nailed to a very simple wooden cross, no gold in sight, the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. Humiliated for all to see, Jesus' nakedness was exposed on the altar of his cross. Bleeding, he hung naked like one cursed when he bore all our guilt and shame. Just as the prophet Isaiah predicted, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. And so when the decision of God, the weight of God's judgment on the sin of the world came crushing down on Jesus, no one would have known that this was the meeting place. The cross was the meeting place between heaven and earth. Jesus died as our representative so that by faith in him, all our sins can be forgiven and once again, we can approach God. Once and for all time, Jesus reversed the curse placed on Adam and Eve. That's why the Bible describes Jesus as the last Adam, who after dying, rose again to become a life-giving spirit. And he did this for our sake. This means we no longer need an earthly tabernacle to have our sins forgiven and have a restored relationship with God. Jesus 
is described as our high priest who mediated a new covenant which will result in the resurrection of all believers who will once again dwell with God. That's why Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. But we need to understand how we can make this peace a reality in our lives. And to do so, we need to take a good look in the mirror and consider their own, their own, our own garments. And this brings us to the final part of our salvation fashion tour, our garments. Well, at the start of uh, this evening, I ask you the question, how will you clothe yourself when you meet with God? We've already seen that there's no point meeting with God dressing to impress. You see, straight through all our designer clothing, the moral righteousness that we like to dress up in, his only real concern is the condition of our hearts. So if you're here today wanting a restored relationship with God, there's no point pretending you've got any eternal fashion sense. It's just not going to cut the mustard. Instead, we need to take off our dirty rags and clothe ourselves in the love and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. This garment will never perish, spoil or fade. This involves saying sorry to God, acknowledging our sin and asking him to clean us up and be the ruler of our lives. But be warned, as we try on Jesus, as we put him on as a garment, making him the Lord of our lives, something interesting starts to happen. Because in some ways, putting on Jesus won't feel like the perfect fit. That's because when we clothe ourselves in Jesus, God's spirit enters into our heart and starts to mould us into the shape we were originally created to be. And this will mean that the harmful things we used to desire will start to take on less appeal as God's Spirit encourages us to resist. So maybe previously you couldn't resist that really expensive handbag or the latest sports car, but now your compassion for the poor makes you choose a cheaper option so you can share your wealth with others. Maybe you used to be a, a people pleaser with overriding career ambitions at work. So previously, when a manager acted unjustly towards a colleague, you would have kept your head down low. But now, you feel compelled to stand up for their rights and confront the manager. Or maybe you used to push the boundaries of flirting with one of the people you knew you shouldn't. But now you work hard to keep your heart and your body loyal and true. Or maybe in the past someone's really hurt you and previously you were bent on revenge. How and now, now you've understood what Jesus has done for you, you're on a journey of learning to forgive. You see, it's not possible for God's Spirit to dwell inside you, to clothe yourself in Christ and for it to make no impact on the way you live your life. That's because God has ordained all believers now to be his holy priesthoods. And this means you're called by God to mediate his love into the watching world around. To an onlooker, this means that they'll see you're clothed in compassion, in kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. They'll watch the way you behave and they'll see that you don't gossip or you don't hold grudges that other people would. And they'll question how you're able to demonstrate such love. 
And then the Bible says, as this process starts to take place in our lives, when it happens, we should sing to God with gratitude in our hearts because God has clothed us in Christ's righteousness. And this means that we can approach God in full confidence and that we can finally know his peace. Hope you enjoyed the Salvation Fashion Tour. Amen.